0: Hey, for this week's episode, I chatted with Wahini Vara. She's reading from her new book, The Immortal King Rao. It's a great read. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Jude Brewer. You are listening to Storybound.
1: King Rao left this world as the most influential person ever to have lived. He entered it, possessing not even a name. In the beginning, his mother-to-be stood at the little general store in the center of her village, eyeing the tins of soap piled neatly on the countertop facing the road. It was 1951. Radha has seen this brand before, on excursions to Rajamundri, with her father and sister. But finding a stack of soap tins at their shop... Three high and two wide. Pears, 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 pears. Was something else altogether. Radha was 18, and she hated Cut this hot, wet nothing of a village, nestled in the elbow crook of one of the many canals delivering the Godavari River east to the Bay of Bengal. Its name meant, simply, New Village, the equivalent in Telugu of all the new towns scattered around the English-speaking world. Several variations on the name could be found in the region. This particular village was distinguished, if that word could even be used, by the arrangement of its small center around a circle where the roads converged. In the middle of the circle stood a people tree under which men congregated in the shade, sitting on overturned wooden crates borrowed from the general store, while stray mutts made languid tours around them, hoping for food scraps. Around the circle were the government school, the offices of the tax collector and the village council president, the vegetable and fruit vendors with their carts, a shop selling farm tools, and the general store, before which Ratha stood. International products such as Pears, a British brand, did not often appear in Cut the Police Store. The shopkeeper, one of the most reviled men in the village, was a mean, eagle-eyed miser when it came to his customers but sycophantic toward the politicians whose favor he required. He was a fat, sweaty man with the skin of a dead tamarind tree and big curling lips black at their edges and pink inside, which he pressed together in a grotesque way that reminded Radha of a fish. He sat behind the counter, perched on a high stool. When customers weren't around, he passed his time reading or filing his nails with a scrap of sandpaper. His nostrils narrowed in concentration Behind him was the storehouse where he kept most of the goods. Groceries, toiletries, housewares. Under the counter in front of him were the grain and jaggery, in big jute sacks, and the cooking oil, and an aluminum tin. On the countertop, he displayed items meant to draw the attention of people passing by. He kept his jars of sweets there, for instance, and now that school had ended, children pushed past Radha and lingered in front of the counter, ogling the treats that sat just out of their reach. "'Are you gonna buy some?' The shopkeeper wheezed at them. He never stopped wheezing, a condition that, because he was a mean man, inspired revulsion rather than compassion. If not, get out of here. But a curly haired boy produced a scarred little coin and asked what he could get for it, and the shopkeeper sighed and began haggling. The rest of the children crowded around, offering their advice about the best use of the coin. And now Ratha swiftly grabbed one of the soap tins, stuck it in her armpit where no one could see it, and ducked around the corner. Once out of the shopkeeper's sight, she ran past her house, which doubled as her father's school for Dalit children, to the Muslim graveyard. The roofed, four arched stone structure in the center had always been her secret hiding spot. Most people avoided the graveyard, that deathful place, but Ratha feared nothing. She was a wild-haired, big-boned, dark-skinned girl. She intimidated people. She knew this. It was partly because Appaya, her father, was a headmaster, and partly because she had brains and an inborn imperiousness. The village store, with its occasional imports from other lands, was the closest Ratha had gotten to a more cosmopolitan life. But soon, she had determined, she would move to Rajamundri. She had applied to the teacher's college there. For someone like her to be accepted, a girl, a Dalit, would be unusual. But her father had connections, and she was sure that when she told him of her plans, he would help her execute them. She would leave him behind, and her sister. They both doted on her, but her father and sister had never understood each other. She imagined them living after she left in embarrassed silence, neither able to begin a conversation that wasn't about her. Still, it gave her only a slight pang of guilt. She'd always had the feeling greatness was in store for her. She was, after all, King Rao's mother-to-be. So the air of death that lingered in the graveyard did not faze Ratha. She and her younger sister, Sita, had grown up playing there. Now, crouching in a corner of the structure and making as little noise as she could, Ratha unboxed the soap and carefully peeled off its paper wrapping, so she could get a better look and feel. She'd never committed such an act as this, but what had she done, exactly? She didn't consider it stealing, because she planned to return the item. The soap was cool and light in her palm. It had rounded sides, and the loveliest color, clear but with a deep amber tint, like an amulet that belonged at the breast of an ancient queen. She turned the soap around in her hand, enthralled. It was the advertisements on the radio and billboards promising that pears could turn bad skin good that had made her so desirous. When she lived in a hostel in Rajamundri, she decided she would bathe with one of these. What Radha wouldn't have realized, but I can't help but remark upon, is that Paris had been selling its soaps across the British Empire for a long time. In 1899, at the height of British colonialism, one advertisement had read, The first step towards lightening the white man's burden is through teaching the virtues of cleanliness. Paris soap is a potent factor in brightening the dark corners of the earth as civilization advances. By the time the Lever brothers, William and James, acquired Paris toward the end of World War I, It had established impressive markets around the world, including in India. Several years later, when Indian soap sales fell, William Lever suspected that Gandhi's Swadeshi movement was to blame. So he purchased a little soap-making plant in Calcutta to help him position his products as just as indigenous as the local stuff. The move proved prescient. Soon afterward, in one of the world's first transnational mergers, Lever brothers combined with the Dutch margarine producer Margarine Uni, When India gained independence and codified its economic nationalism, the Calcutta plant meant Unilever's Indian subsidiaries could operate under the same terms as any Bombayite competitor. At first, the nationalists resisted. But as Radha entered high school, their opposition was fading, hence the arrival of pears at Kuttapali's store. Radha noticed someone coming into the cemetery. She froze. It was Pedda Rao, a boy in her class at school, and he was coming toward where she hid. Pedda's father, the richest Thalit landowner in the village, was a friend of her father's. Pedda had an identical twin brother, Chinna, but their personalities were nothing alike. Chinna was confident, ambitious, and popular. Friends with Brahmins and these as well as Dalits. Pedda was bitter, lazy, and friendless. Padda peered into the structure, then stood looking at Radha as if expecting something. "'Hi,' she said, standing. She had meant to shoo him off with her tone, but her voice, when it came out, surprised her. Wet. Soapy. He must have heard it, too. He didn't answer, but he didn't leave, either, and after a moment, he sidled inside and stood facing her. She supposed he had come there for some private business of his own— But she'd been there first. He should wait his turn, she thought. And she gave him a look of annoyance meant to convey this. Is that the soap you stole? Petha said. She reddened. I bought it. Petha laughed bitterly. That's not what the shopkeeper said. I was walking by and heard him telling the children to run and find you. If they did, they'd get a reward. They're wandering all over town. I thought you'd be in your usual spot. The atmosphere between them was charged. If they were both boys, someone might have spat. Instead, Pet moved close and made a completely unexpected move. Taking her by the shoulders, he spun her to face one corner of the structure and stood right behind her, his hot breath wetting her neck. A strange pressure, hard and soft at the same time, pushed into the curve of one of her hips. She with the soap in her hand and her desire, not for him, but for the soap, for the life she had promised herself, went mute. His hands cupped her hips and pulled her to him and he bucked against her while she stood perfectly motionless, holding the bar of soap tight in her fist. At one point, she thought he had unzipped his pants. She should scream and flee. That would be the correct thing to do. But there was that desire. She was not herself. She cried out, and he did too, spurting a warm jet of fluid onto her lunga. From down the road came the shopkeeper's voice. Hey, who's that in there? At once, he was at the arch, peering in. What's this, what's this? Ped the ghast, pulled away, and sprinted out of the cemetery, leaving Radha alone to confront the shopkeeper. Who stood there breathing so heavily, she could see his gut moving up and down. The children saw what you were doing in here, he said. They ran and got me. He took her roughly by the shoulders and steered her toward the village center, shouting in the direction of her father's school as they passed. Headmaster, hey, see what your little girl's up to. Master, wait till you find out what I caught her doing. Ratha's father came out of the school. The shopkeeper called out over his shoulder. I know she's not a bad girl, but I saw it myself. In the center, the president of the village council, too, emerged from his office, shielding his eyes from the sun. Ratha's face went hot with rage. She wanted to shout that the shopkeeper was lying, but then there was the semen's wetness soaking through her lunga and the soap in her fist. The shopkeeper had not even taken it from her. Drop it, little fool, she told herself. It'll be his word against yours. But she couldn't bring herself to do it. The ridiculousness of the situation, the joke of it, even though the joke was on her, made a strong impression. In her final moment of freedom, my grandmother-to-be held that bar of pears with a faint smile and did not let go. The morning of the wedding, Pedda told his twin, Chinna, that he didn't plan to consummate the marriage yet. It was in fact Chinna who had harbored a crush on Radha ever since her father, the schoolmaster, had combined the boys' class with the girls. She's strong, Chinna would whisper late at night. She's like a horse. Ever since the engagement, the brothers had barely spoken. Petha's talk of delaying the consummation was his first acknowledgement, albeit an indirect one, of his breach. Chinna flinched. He spat in the dirt. Don't be immature, he said. You're going to have to touch her one of these nights. He added, It's not like you've never touched her. And spat again, as if expelling something disgusting. The wedding took place on the Rao property, which everyone called the garden because the land was famously fertile. The Rao's livelihood came from a sizable coconut grove around which they had built their homes. It was a good family to marry into, but that afternoon, Radha stood straight-shouldered, as grim and resolute as a political prisoner awaiting her execution. When Petha, her groom, tied the Mangal Sutra around her neck and knotted it three times, she did not flinch. She smelled, to Pedda, of sandalwood and sweat. He found her fearsome. Later on, the feast consumed, the chicken bones and other postprandial debris tossed in a heap for the goats. Pedda and Chinna's room swept clear, their cot strewn with marigold petals. Pedda stood in the middle of the room, looking at his wife, who sat on the cot. It occurred to him that he did not know her at all. They were strangers. Ratha sat with her legs folded to one side and her back pressed to the wall tracing the henna designs on her feet with her finger. Pedda murmured, almost as if to himself, "'I'm not like other men.'" "'Men,' Radha said, her lips twitching a little. She spoke precisely, every vowel and consonant standing erect in its place, the verbal equivalent of good posture. "'Other men like to show off about how great they are,' he said. "'I take action.'" He had rehearsed these lines, but his words now mortified him. Stupid. Grandiose. He wondered if Chinna, who was sleeping out on the veranda tonight since their room had been turned into the marital chamber, could hear the conversation. The horror of it. Though Pedda was technically the older one, having been born nine minutes before Chinna, he knew he was less impressive by all other metrics. Chinna was handsome and sharp-featured. Pedda, soft and lymphatic. Chinna attracted friends and admirers everywhere, while Pedda repelled them simply by entering a room. It must have been Pedda's perverse sense of competition with Chinna. It never left him. That had compelled him toward Radha that afternoon in the graveyard. He had never regretted anything more. Radha picked up a marigold petal and tore it in half. Great, she said. I mean, we'll work together, side by side. But he was losing his thread. Because you're strong, you're like a horse. She laughed harshly. She might as well have slapped him. A horse, she said. But no, dear husband, I'm going to be a teacher, not a farmer. Oh God, what had he done to get to this point? But she'd had a part in it too, hadn't she? She had pressed against him, he could have sworn she had. And hadn't she been the one to steal that soap, to refuse even, to return it to the shopkeeper once she had been discovered, like some kind of imbecile? Now here she sat frowning on the cot as if she were the victim. His ill will toward her thickened. His arms were spring-loaded. It took effort to keep them at his sides. After a while, she stood and walked just past him to the far corner of the room where her belongings lay folded in a chest. With her back to him, she reached between her breasts and unfastened the hooks of her blouse under her sari. A small swell rose in him, some combination of care and lust. He focused on this, encouraging it to expand and displace his anger. That must feel better, he said. Don't look at me, she replied. He fixed his gaze toward the bed and silently counted the marigold petals there. One, two, three, four, and heard the rustle of his wife undressing. Five, six, seven, and was reminded of his childhood, when his cousin sisters used to strip in the rain and splash naked in the shallow pools of water that collected at the edge of the clearing, between the house and the coconut grove. The boys sometimes stole the girls' underwear and threatened to feed it to the stray dogs. Idiots, the girls shouted, coming at them with clawed hands. Get back here. We'll break your rotten teeth. The girls were leaving now, one by one, married off. His wife moved toward him. She had changed into a plain cotton sari, ochre-colored. She walked past him to the cot where she sat and undid her braid, releasing her hair into loose waves around her shoulders. Without looking at him, she pulled her legs onto the cot, turned away, and lay curled against the wall. He bristled with desire. But what was he supposed to do? The minutes stretched on forever. From her careful breathing, he could tell she wasn't sleeping. Finally, he sat on the bed and put a hand on her shoulder. When she didn't recoil, he said, You look like a mendicant, Lemon. It was her father's nickname for her, which he'd overheard. She froze, but didn't open her eyes. They wear those red robes, he said, over-explaining. What did you call me, she said. He laughed nervously. I- I'm going to call you that from now on, he said. Don't, she said, and shivered. Cold, he said, rubbing her shoulder. And when she didn't answer, he said, Lemon, are you cold? No, she said. She gave a shrug so violent that his hand slipped from her. He moved closer, raising himself on an elbow, so that he was propped above her. Her scent was musky and vegetal, mannish. "'I can keep you warm,' he said, his voice sounding roguish even to himself. "'If you touch me,' she said, "'I'll scream.'" "'But I'm your husband.'" He couldn't understand what his brother saw in this girl. I swear, this time, I'll scream. The truth was that she terrified him. But he gathered his courage and rolled close to his wife, taking her in his arms. Her breath caught. I told you, don't touch me, she murmured. He didn't move. I mean it, she said. But she wasn't as insistent as she had been earlier, or at least she didn't seem so to him. From behind, he clamped his hand over her mouth hard. He straddled her, shifting her onto her back and holding her legs down with his own. He had expected her to scream as she had promised, but now she only stared up at him with wide, wet eyes, as if waiting to see what would happen next. He pulled her sorry and petticoat up past her knees and moved into her, and she gulped a couple of times, but lay quietly, still staring up at him. He kept his hand over her mouth and pumped on top of her. Radha's breath was hot and wet on his palm. I love you, I love you, I love you, he said. She thrashed her head around, her hair caught in her mouth, and snot dripped from her nose. She was crying. There was so much fabric between them, all those ochre folds. He pressed himself to her tightly and said, "'My wife!' There came a swell of joy and a bursting, and finally, emptiness and shame. When he extracted himself, he found blood on his thighs. "'I'm bleeding,' he said with alarm. "'No, dear husband,' she said. "'I'm bleeding.' In the middle of the night, he awoke to find Ratha in the corner of the room near the chest, with her back to him, fully clothed. She was untangling her hair with her fingers. Now she stood looking at the henna designs lightening on her palms. It was a bad omen, the early oranging. Are you all right, he said. She turned to him. The color is fading, she said. Come back to bed, Lemon, he told her. And to his great awe and gratitude, she did. When Radha returned six months later to her childhood home behind the schoolhouse rooms, she insisted to Sita that she had allowed it to happen only once. Sex, she told her sister, was an inherent violation. She had closed herself off to her husband after that one awful night which was to say she knew for a fact that it had been that night's violence that had produced her unborn spawn. Sita was Radha's opposite, the kind of girl who saw no gain in asking for more than she was given. When Radha disappeared into the Rao fold after the wedding, neither visiting nor spending more than a couple of minutes with Sita and her father when they came to the Rao's place themselves, Sita had accepted it as the new order of things. She was sitting on the veranda of the school when their father brought Radha home to spend the rest of her pregnancy there, according to custom, until the time came to give birth. Sita leapt up and led her sister into their father's bedroom, and when her sister had lain down, Sita brought her a glass of lemonade. Radha, Sita noticed, did not look well. Several months had passed since they had been alone together, and Radha's bulbed stomach made her seem even more like a stranger. Though her stomach was rounded, the fat seemed to have dissolved from her arms and hips, and a fine line had appeared beneath each of her eyes. Sita had expected her sister to seem radiant, like young brides in stories she had read, but the opposite was true. There was a darkness to her sister that she'd never seen. It frightened her. She hoped the real Radha had hidden somewhere inside this other woman and wasn't lost for good. Those hicks in your new family are overworking you, she gently teased. She added, nervously, worried that her sister's alliances might have shifted since her marriage. I'm just teasing. Sita was sitting on the foot of her sister's bed, her knees up, drilling Radha about her life at the Rao's home. Apaya had prepared his room for Radha so she could rest well and wouldn't have to share a bed with her sister. He moved to the schoolroom floor where he slept on a rolled-out pallet. Still, Radha shunned her father. She was irate with him for forcing her into marrying Pedda. He let people think of him as a progressive man, but he had shown himself to be as spineless as any other. Even putting aside the horror of the wedding night, Radha admitted, she hadn't wanted a child at all. When she gave birth, she would have to stop her studies and stay at home. Even though she hadn't had many chores at the garden because of her pregnancy, she'd failed at the one she did have. She had tried at first, valiantly even, waking at three in the morning to start the breakfast preparations and wash laundry by moonlight before going to school. But she wasn't used to it. At home, their servants had always done the housework. At the garden, everyone was expected to pitch in, to keep the operation running. For the woman, that meant taking care of all the cooking and cleaning. The women of the garden, it was said, often died before their husbands did. The smoke from the kitchen fire made Ratha's eyes redden and hurt, and she tired so quickly at the big mortar and pestle that her chutneys turned out fibrous and bitter. Once, she caught pneumonia from the nighttime chill and had to spend days in bed. She heard the wives of Petha's cousins mutter that they thought she was strong. Her whole reputation had been for being strong, but she had not entirely shed the fortitude for which she was famous. When she was alone, she'd privately terrorized the unborn creature. "'Get out of here,' she told it in her mind. "'Leave me alone.' Sometimes she punched her stomach to punctuate the point. When she imagined the creature, she thought of a leech that couldn't be dislodged from inside her. It made her ill. In the morning, she woke early so the others wouldn't overhear her vomiting in the outhouse. She still had hope that the creature would receive her messages. "'Get out of here. Leave me alone.' The creature ate her food, shared her blood, Wasn't it possible that it could absorb her thoughts? Well, what if she can hear and still gets born? Sita whispered. She'll grow up thinking, My mother hates me. I heard her from in there before I was born. It'll mess up her whole life. Don't think such thoughts. But the creature wasn't innocent, Radha hissed. It was a monster. When she punched it, the monster punched her in return. This was war. It was violent. It wasn't the magical experience people talk about. Plus, it isn't a daughter, she added. It's definitely a son. When Radha's contraction started, the midwife came over and climbed onto the cot. Sita watched the midwife part her sister's legs and peer between them. But the midwife gave a short, sour laugh and said, Stop being a pervert and go sit next to her. Chastened. Sita moved to place herself on the floor next to Ratha's head. The midwife chattered as she pressed at Ratha's stomach. She made a mean comment about a mutual cousin of theirs who was an albino, and Sita laughed heartily, not out of appreciation, but because she wanted to be on the midwife's good side. She held Ratha's work-toughened hand and pressed on the veins of her sister's wrist. Soon, she thought gloomily, she would be married herself find her own belly expanding into a hard, venous balloon with a knotted center, and end up on the same cot with the midwife's fist between her legs. It made no sense. She still felt like she and her sister were children. She squeezed Ratha's hand, but her sister's eyes were shut in pain, and she didn't return the squeeze. The curves of Ratha's nostrils flared, and dots of sweat bloomed on her brow and dripped into her hair. She made wet, grunting noises. Many hours passed. The contractions narrowed, and Radha began screaming. Then, the midwife committed an act of sheer violence. Kneeling, she shoved her hand into the flesh between Radha's legs. Radha mewled and moved like an animal being butchered. Sita gripped her sister's shoulder, but Radha flung out an arm and cried, "'Get off!' How could birth so resemble death? The midwife's bony wrist flexed inside Radha. Then out it came, covered in blood and a whitish grease. The infant's head grasped in the midwife's hand like a cut of meat. The whole child emerged, unbreathing. The midwife held him upside down by his legs in one fist and, with her free hand, whacked his backside until he wailed. (coughs) My father was born with his eyes wide open and crust-rimmed. He had a muddy, eczematous complexion. From his belly, a glutinous rope swayed until the midwife pinched it between two fingers and snipped with the scissors her husband used for barbering. She laid the umbilical cord and the scissors at the end of the cot near Radha's feet. Only then did Sita turn from the spectacle of childbirth and notice her sister... Ratha's breathing was labored, and her face was pale. She didn't smile, nor, when the midwife held the child out, did she raise her arms to receive him. She fluttered her eyelids and groaned. Some spit bubbled from her mouth, reddish, like rusted water. Had she bitten her tongue? Sita wiped the bloody saliva with her thumb and touched her sister's forehead. It was wet and hot. "'Is she supposed to be like this?' she asked. "'And the midwife hadn't yet answered "'when blood began trickling, "'then gushing from between Radha's legs. "'Zita sprinted down the street to where the doctor, "'a Dutchman known as the Hollander, lived. "'But by the time they got back to the house, "'Radha's lips were purpling. "'The umbilical cord had fallen to the floor "'in a pool of blood. "'Their father was crouched over Radha,' clutching her hands and shouting her name. Sita was peering at him, uncomprehending, when the midwife thrust the swaddled child at her. Sita turned to her father. Should she reach out to him? Hand him the child? Radha would tell her, she thought, for a confusing moment. Radha would know what to do. If Radha had a given name planned, she had kept it secret from everyone, including Pedda. Even the child's surname was up in the air, since it was not clear whether, in the final accounting, he would be taken in by Pedda's family, the Rao's, or by his late mothers. Appaya blamed Radha's in-laws for her death, his friendship with Pedda's father be damned, and wanted to demand a refund of the dowry. But Sita was in the throes of an uncommon fit of willfulness. If she married Pedda and adopted the child, The Rouse couldn't demand a new dowry. It would be distasteful. Your grandson is part of that family, even if you don't like it. And this way you don't have to pay another dowry for me to marry someone else, Sita said. Apaya, normally a man of unbending judgment, had shrunk in his grief. In the end, he didn't agree with his younger daughter's plan so much as he stopped protesting it. They had been calling the boy only him or the child. Sita wanted to name him as a rebuke to those who pitied him for having been born under a bad star. Raj, she thought, or Raja. It was Peta's brother, Chinna, an Anglophile, who convinced her to use the English version of the name. King. She figured she had better listen to him. She and the baby were to be roused and as a wife and a son, their selves would be subsumed into the Rao Collective. Pedda and Chinna's father was getting old, and while Pedda should have been next in line to assume the family throne, technically being older, no one expected much from him. Chinna clearly would be in charge. A big name for a little runt, some of her new in-laws teased. But Sita wasn't in the mood. He has strong bones, she responded, straight-faced. He has a regal lip. Sita had hired a neighbor girl to nurse him, and the child drank from her breast with slurpy gumption. He has a strong suckle, Sita said. He'll live up to it. Radha was dead. Long live King Rao.
0: Hey, there's still more episode ahead. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Hey, you're listening to Storybound with author Wahini Vara. She's reading from her book, The Immortal King Rao. And now we're going to jump into an interview that we had where she talks about her book. Why is this the origin story? of the immortal King Rao, who is described on the inside cover as the most accomplished tech CEO in the world. Why must his mother rather suffer like this? And because this is a suffering that you've had to live with as you were writing it and through all these stages and you've had to relive it through many times and you relived it for us reading it. Now it's ours to live with. And my own conclusion that the suffering that informs you, it feels like it comes from a place of grief because you're talking about one character kind of succeeding another. So am I right in that? Am I touching on anything? Does it come from grief? Where does that suffering for you speak from?
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, there are two ways to answer the question. Um, On a sort of character level for King, um, to me, it felt like this, this was like one of the first parts of, I, I spent 13 years writing this book and this was one of the first, parts that I wrote. And it felt to me that King is a character who has this sort of like primordial inborn sense of loss and a sense that there's like something he needs to make up for in life. And so as a child, and then as a teenager, and then as a young adult, and then even as an adult, when he's very powerful and accomplished, like he's always seeking something more. And to me, it felt like that comes from in large part from this, like, early, just this loss in the first moment of his life of a person who would have been a very important figure in his life and a person who is intentionally sort of drawn on the page as an impressive, larger-than-life character, even though she's gone by the end of the first chapter. I myself lost my sister. Um, My sister died of cancer when we were younger, when we were sort of, like, in our late teens, early 20s. And, um... And so for me, writing the scene of Radha's death from Sita's perspective was, I mean, it wasn't intentional. I didn't sit down and say like, I'm going to write this scene of someone's death from the perspective of her younger sister, because that's, you know, that's, I'm, I'm the stand in for the younger sister, but certainly like looking back on it now, I understand that to be a you know, in part my own expression of grief, like that grief that Sita feels on the page, of course, comes from my own experience of of a similar grief over having lost my older sister.
0: I guess it's interesting because she seems to suffer so much at the hands of, I mean, just different levels of men throughout her life. And that's super upsetting. You know, for me growing up, it was just uh, my mother and I. Like, I didn't live with my father, mm. so I naturally just was like, I'm on my mom's side.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so when, my,
0: when my mom and I fought, it was kind of like, well, I guess I'm against the whole world now.
1: <laughs> right. Right. I know what you mean.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I feel like it's very easy to feel for her and not feel for um, her husband, and then really wonder what the future holds, holds for Rao. Did you have this beginning figured out before anything else?
1: I did not. No, um, I think in the first versions of the book, I believe if if I'm remembering correctly, I started more with King's own story, and then the story of his birth came a little bit later. But it was all it was all at the very beginning. And if I'm remembering correctly, I so I started this book in graduate school, and I was in a novel workshop. I was in this workshop where we were all working on novels. And the writer, Matthew Null, was in that workshop with me. And he workshopped the first chapter of a book in which this character, who seems like they're going to be the most Im- important character in the book, is killed off by the end. And I was like, ah, oh, that's so ballsy. <laughs> and right. I, to be honest, I, th- I think I stole that con- that idea from him. I can't remember, though. I can't actually remember the timing. Maybe maybe we just like separately came up with it together. Or separately, came up with the with the same concept around the same time, but I do remember thinking that was ballsy, and I feel like it, certainly as I've been revising, like I've had that in mind in in writing that chapter because I think like in um, Game of Thrones, you know, where, like, they they started killing off, like, characters you thought would be key characters in, like, the first season. And everybody was like, you can't do that in TV. It felt like a a similarly, like, just interesting craft choice. But then also, like like I said, it it wasn't just because it was a fun craft choice. It was because, like, it felt like a really important um, backdrop for King's
0: Story. Well, and it earns its place as soon as you bring it into the first person. My more, less sophisticated example would be the movie Scream. Have you seen Scream? <laughs>
1: yes. I mean, I saw it in high school. So
0: in the beginning of Scream, Drew Barrymore is supposed mm. to, is, you think she's gonna be your lead. That's and right. Because they're like, she and but they were also playing off of her cultural significance that people are like, oh, I recognize Drew Barrymore. That's they wouldn't right. kill her off.
1: Right, she's like in the kitchen of that house and yeah, that's right. <laughs> and they kill her off at the beginning and you're shocked. Yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah.
0: So you were inspired by Scream. Exactly. That's what I, yeah. That's, yeah. That's Matt Noll gets no
1: credit. This. I take that back. <laughs> Matt, if you're listening to this.
0: <laughs> just throw him under the bus. Yeah, I do I, I am familiar with your essay about your sister where you were you were co-writing with an AI, essentially. Because by the end of that piece, it is um it's interesting how you used just an abundance of your own words and a copying of it to try and get a different response almost like you were arguing or getting frustrated with the AI and feeling that frustration was was interesting because I, I had a friend who'd passed away and mm. I used a, a a um it's called replica and yeah. you and they're essentially an AI you can have a conversation with
1: yeah I remember looking at that right
0: so I found myself having a conversation with this really important person in my life who was no longer around and then it was like now I'm screenshotting it and sharing it with one of my other friends and saying isn't this like so strange. I'm kind of buying I'm kind of buying into it like my brain is accessing some magical thinking right now.
1: Yeah, it's really strange. And did you read there was that um, San Francisco Chronicle story about a guy who like tried to create a chatbot representing his dead partner?
0: I have not heard of that, actually.
1: Yeah, it's pretty wild how like there's a way in which... Um, like we like to think of technology and i think it's like largely true that technology doesn't represent the the realist deepest parts of ourselves but then like because it's so embedded in our lives like there are these ways in which we can use it to access those parts in surprising ways
0: there's still more interview ahead we'll be right back after this final commercial break This is Storybound. We're with author Wahini Vara and we're discussing her book, The Immortal King Rao.
1: I, as I said, I worked on this book for 13 years. I started it in 2009. And have been like just working on it ever since like even I got you know I got the copy edits back from my publisher and then I was like writing in the margins and then I got the the, you know, the page proofs that are supposed to be like the pages that you just check for typos. And then I was like, you know, making plot adjustments and changing characters. And I sent it back to my publisher, Norton. They got really mad at me. They were like, you've got to stop. This book is done. I mean, I think part of the reason this book took me 13 years is that part of me as a writer has like, just not wanted to let go of the book. Like I still, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, 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 you know, bound and inside a book cover now and it's all printed and done. And I still will walk down the street and like think of things that I want to change or, Mm -hmm. you know, new plot developments or character details. So for me, it's weird to admit this, but like getting the final copy of the book, like which felt you know should feel fully like a triumph I think like felt partly like a triumph and partly like oh crap like I can't work on this book anymore Um, yeah right so it feels very much like a still living thing that I need to do some work to you know allow to exist out in the world without me I'm also working on a collection of stories that comes out in a year so that's the that's the next book and I'm in working on edits for that book so it feels good to have another project So I I feel like I've identified as a writer for a long time. I'm almost 40 now, and this is my first book. And so it feels like now I can justifiably, maybe more justifiably call myself a writer. Um, You you mentioned that you noticed that this book starts in the third person, but then this first person voice pops in. um, And the backstory behind that was that Um, my dad gave me the sort of germ of the idea for this book. I was like on this trip with my dad and he was giving me a hard time for only writing short stories and was like, why don't you write a novel? And I was teasing him back and was like, well, dad, like, why don't you give me an idea for the novel then? And, um, he said, why don't you write about my family coconut grove where I grew up, where there was all this drama And I was like, well, that's actually a really good idea. and But the problem is that I never lived, I never grew up, I was not born and raised in India. I was born in Canada and raised there and in the US. I went back and visited that coconut grove, but not regularly enough to feel like it was my home. So I felt like a little bit of an outsider, even though I'm Indian American, I'm Dalit, my dad's Dalit. And so I felt like I had to invent this other character who could access the story of King Rao, but who wasn't trying to be King Rao. And that's where the eye actually came from. The sort of eye, I mean, the the eye as in this character, Athena, who is the eye in the book telling the story.
0: I've never been to a coconut grove. They're they're beautiful. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. I did a lot of uh, cannery work. What's the harvesting like with, with coconut groves?
1: So you... You harvest seven years after planting the tree. the first harvest comes in. So it's a really long um, a really long process um, and it's changed a lot over time. Um, so my dad's family family coconut business was in um, was in like processing, taking coconuts, um, breaking them open, drying the meat inside, and then selling that dried coconut meat. And after a while, like they were they were like buying coconuts from other farms and then processing like it wasn't just their own family farm. So his farm was sort of like evolving over the 20th century as the kind of global economy was evolving which happens in the on the coconut grove in the book as well and so now it's all like it's so different now than from from how it was back then like back then it was all a lot of like family small family operations and now
0: it's all become corporate like anything else like anything else man why'd you have to bring us back to reality I know, just, i'm sorry let- Let's stay back in the nice where the coconut grove was was smaller and this lovely, beautiful thing. No, that's great. Um, I'm really excited for everyone to read this book. And I'm so happy we got to we got the chat. So I hope uh, you're happy with the episode and how it turns out.
1: I'm sure I will be. This was a lot of it was a lot of fun talking to you and your questions were so perceptive. So thank you for Uh. thank you for that. Thanks for being so nice about my uh, my first reading ever from this book.
0: Thanks. The questions come from like the the 20 minute nervous breakdown before we're even chatting, and I'm like, I don't know anything. I oh, don't, I'm, glad I, I, is, I talk? I'm glad you have that too. I'm glad. Like, I'm
1: glad your guests aren't the only ones who have to have the nervous breakdown.
0: Oh no, I should probably <laughs> tell everybody that. Like that should just be a forewarning, because like my girls, they want to do theater, and I told them like, look, every time I go on stage, no matter what, I always have to pee. I just <laughs> went, but I still gotta go. <laughs>
1: that's so great. Oh, I love hearing that. Yeah, no, that's it's so nice to it's so nice to hear, because I am like don't feel like a natural in these settings either, so. Oh,
0: no, um, you're a natural, and everyone's going to hear it. That's, your reading was, was fantastic. Oh, Thank
1: thanks you. so
0: much. Thank you to Wahine Yvara for reading. Her book, The Immortal King Rao, is available now at your favorite local bookseller. Thank you to Aaron Lovett, our friends at WW Norton, and Epidemic Sound. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Poglomerate. Social media help from Sylvia Beltill. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. This episode's editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, hosting, mixing, and mastering were done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Fonbrough of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday. Thanks for listening.